For our message today, it will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Royal Law. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. So, as was mentioned, the title of my message today is The Royal Law. And I've actually, you know, done a study on this before. I've, you know, it's, it comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which is what inspired the title of this message today. But before we go to James, I do want to just go quickly to a passage of scripture from the prophet Micah. Micah was, you know, preaching at a time where things were not going well for Judah and, of course, Israel. And much of his prophecy or prophetic, you know, prophetic book was kind of an indictment on how Israel and Judah had turned away from God. But there's this scripture that many of us have heard before, and it's probably one of my favorite scriptures ever, because it's something that I think we would all do well to strive to live by. And you've probably heard of it before. It's Micah 6, verse 8, and it says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, with your God. What a different world we would live in today if every human being made it their mission and their goal in life to live up to this standard that was presented here in Micah's prophecy. What a different world we would live. And fortunately, we know those of us who believe in the kingdom of God, someday there will be a world where all humanity, all creatures of God, will exhibit these characteristics. But as I was thinking about this text, and James, and you know that word justice that just kind of popped up to me in, in Micah's prophecy, today in the world that we live in, the word justice is something that means all different kinds of things. It's a word that's used often, especially in our current context of the 21st century, political context, our history, or culture, or society, that it's almost become fuzzy exactly what does justice mean anymore. Are we talking about the current contemporary movements of the social justice movements, economic justice, racial justice? What we do see in this world is this word justice being used quite a bit. But with it, we also see a lot of division and tolerance, fighting from all sides. And for some, the word justice, of course, because of this, has lost its meaning or value because it's attached to so many different ideas. And in the weeds of all of this, some have actually lost civility. We see it on social media. We see it how people interact with each other in society. We can watch the news and see people argue their points in an uncivil way, not in a professional manner, not in a manner that gives a sense of dignity to the person that they may disagree with. 
And unfortunately, some within Christianity have even become wrapped up in this. And so in thinking about these things and the current society that we live in, I knew that in being inspired by the text that's coming from James, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I wanted to talk to us today and bring a message about our conduct toward our fellow man. Because it's very important how we treat each other because people are watching. People see how we interact with each other, even people that we may not know. And that plays a critical role, in my opinion, in my view, of our witness. So today I have two main points. We're going to go to, if you want to already go there, it'll be up on the screen. I have two main simple points. They're not new. They're not what you would call deep theological complex scriptures or ideas. But oh, are they difficult to employ in our day-to-day lives. Main point one. Main point one. See and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. That's basic, right? Nothing complex to that until you start trying to live that out. The second main point, coming from James chapter 2 as well, which is inspired by the title, the title of my message is inspired from, set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. So we're going to talk about these things. Let's read James. I want to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 first. And then we'll get into these two main points. James chapter 2 says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so my first main point, see and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. As I mentioned, this is a simple point, but very difficult to put into practice into our life. James uses this word partial or partiality 
And it's a Greek word that means, just at a real basic level, respect of persons. In our English today, if you were to go to a dictionary and want to know what the word partiality means, a basic definition of partiality is an unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. Another way of putting this, it's favoritism. It's favoritism. Now, all of us are partial in our lives in different aspects. We're human beings. We're subjective human beings, have different experiences, different interests. We may have a favorite sports team that we're partial to. We may be partial to certain types of music. Music, as we're driving down the road, we might like country over rock or vice versa. Or when we're in church, we might be partial to listening to hymns versus the contemporary music. We all have partiality in our lives. But James is warning us not to allow this to enter in when it comes to how we deal with people. In the Roman world, and so much of our Bible study we're talking about, we talk about the culture of what's going on because we have to. We know that they live in a culture that has certain things going on, and that's what gives color to understanding what Paul is saying. Well, in the same way, as a New Testament document, James is writing in the Roman world, and so much of the culture was wrapped up in the social stratosphere. As part of this culture, it was common for those in wealthier positions to receive public displays of honor. It was common for people of status, I guess you would say, to get honor, to get maybe the best seats and things like that, to get, you know, have more privilege than those who were in the lower parts of the social stratosphere. And obviously, us living today, we can see this to some extent in our own culture. And we've all experienced people being partial to us. And maybe we have actually, in our life, because we're human beings, we have carnal nature, even though we're in Christ and we have a previous life before Christ, maybe we have situations in our life where we practice partiality. Now, it may be different to some extent. We have family. We're partial to our family. We're partial to people that we're really close to. But that's not what James is talking about, per se. He's talking about being partial and playing favoritism based upon, essentially, what that person can do for you. Someone who's wealthier, oh, I want to really make them happy. I want to give them a good seat. Versus someone that may be of lower status and things like that. Now, I mentioned basically what the Greek word partial means. And essentially, in the Greek, it means, uh, you know, respect of persons. But if you dig a little bit deeper, this phrase in the Greek actually was a descriptive phrase that meant receiving someone according to their face. Now, that's kind of a strange way to think of it. Receiving someone according to their face, the essence of judging someone based upon their external appearance. For example, someone that you perceive to be wealthy, they have certain types of clothes versus someone who may have filthy clothes. Now, as I was studying this, I was reading that this word, this term, is actually has, has an association with some concepts in the Old Testament. Some context in all throughout the Old Testament. I just picked three. For example, Psalm 82, verse 2 says, How long will you judge unjustly 
and show partiality to the wicked. Proverbs 18.5, it is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. And my third example, again, Malachi 2, chapter, or verses 9 says, Therefore I have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Now, in almost all of these contexts, the rebukes were aimed at judges, people in positions of leadership, like priests, who began rendering their judgments not to uphold justice or the true intent of God's law, but would rather favor the people that they were making the judgment on, such as the wicked, being influenced by their wealth. And we see Israel fall into this where the leaders, even the priests, would be influenced by the social status of individuals. Those who were charged with bringing about justice would be guilty of showing partiality to individuals based upon status, specifically wealth. We've seen this in our own culture. All of us, right? We see this all, you know, we have many examples of this. Uh, You know, maybe we see someone who's famous, who's wealthy, and they commit a crime, or they get in some sort of legal trouble. And we wonder, how in the world does this individual get away with it? The evidence may seem to be there, but because of their prestige, because of their financial capabilities, the lawyers that they can hire and things like that, their positions in this life has allowed them more leeway, even in the justice system that we live in today. And of course, I don't know all the details on all of these, but all of us have probably experienced this to some extent. And sometimes these stories are national and they're with famous people and they're highlighted in our culture in the 90s, of course. You know, the famous one was O.J. Simpson, right? Okay? You know, O.J. Simpson was this uh, somewhat iconic, he was a former football player and then turned actor and he had a lot of notoriety and he had a lot of money. And a lot of people believe that the justice system did not serve justice. Now, I'm not here to say that that wasn't the correct verdict, but that's an example that many people would probably cite. We have many examples, of course, throughout God's word on how much God disdains the behavior of those in positions of power showing partiality towards people of status and wealth at the expense of of the weak, the poor, the hungry. And God, we know, disdains this because it goes against the nature and very character that we know God has. And make no mistake, all of us that are followers of Jesus Christ know that we have been called to replicate the character of Jesus, the character of God our Father. And the blueprint for that is his son. And James calls him the Lord of glory. He opens it up by saying, by not showing partiality, those of you who claim to follow the Lord of glory. Now I thought this was interesting because there's somewhat of a discussion that has taken place as to just how the Lord of glory should be interpreted. Now many of us, have heard of what's known as the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. 
It's a term that was coined by uh, Israelites and Jews uh, essentially to refer to God's presence, especially in reference to God's presence with Israel in the cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night. They would call it the Shekinah glory. And this was something that designated God's presence with Israel, his glory. When we turn to the New Testament, the first chapter of John, and many of you know where I'm going with this, we see that John is devoted to utilizing this concept of how God's glory and presence, some would refer and think of the words that he used back to the Shekinah glory that those of Israel and Jews would refer to in the Old Testament. He uses this to talk about how God's glory is now manifested and revealed through Jesus. Let's go to John, the first chapter. We've read this more times than we could probably all think of. A famous passage of Scripture, the prologue or the introduction of John, and it says this in John 1, 1 through 4. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, uh, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. I actually did not give you this, Brian, but I'm actually going to go to verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, when we go down a few verses to verse 14, we read, At the end of this prologue, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here John introduces us to this climatic event in his introduction, where this word that he uses, the logos or logos, the the Greek word for word, has become flesh, and John is giving a testimony in his gospel of the incarnation of this Logos, showing the origin of this person that is the Logos, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually not someone that just was born of a Virgin Mary, but rather has his origins in eternality. That he's eternal. And one of the most interesting points, when you skip down to verse 14, you see that he uses these words, dwelt and glory. The Greek verb here is Escaneo, and it means to pitch a tent, to dwell temporarily. And this is why you may have a translation, and some translations will translate this as tabernacled among us. This phrase, tabernacle, or glory, or dwelt rather, coupled with the word glory, is directly related to that time that Israel had God and his presence and the cloud and the pillar of fire at their tabernacle, where God dwelt among Israel in the wilderness, where the Shekinah glory, as they refer to, was revealed to Israel. And it seems apparent that John here is making no mistake, he's wanting his readers to pick up on this, that that glory now is being manifested through Jesus Christ. So with this, if we are servants and followers of the Lord of glory, the, the Lord who once had his glory shown in a cloud and in a pillar of fire through Israel, now that glory is revealed through Jesus Christ 
this individual that was once known as Jesus of Nazareth, if we are going to be servants and followers of the Lord of glory, we should follow in his footsteps, especially in regards to how we treat other people, whether it be brethren or whether it be people, our neighbor in the world. And our neighbor is not just our brethren, not just our fellow Christians and our fellow church members. Our neighbor is anyone that we come into contact with. We have four Gospels that are full of examples of how Jesus both taught and how he treated his fellow man. I want to go to two real quick today with you. The first one's in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. We've read this many times before. It's a parable that says in verse 9, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be exalted, or humbled, excuse me, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. An example of a tax collector and a Pharisee. Tax collector in the social stratosphere of Israel during this period of time was way up here according to Jews and Israelites living in, in the land of Palestine. Tax collectors, we've went over this before, the bottom of the barrel. Traitors of fellow Jewish people. People have decided to turn over their allegiance to the Rome to earn a dollar. They were not liked. And this parable shows you, again, going to one of the most despised groups of people in modern, or not modern, in, in first century Palestine. And Jesus is showing an example of how this individual over the Pharisee was exemplifying more righteousness than someone who is a supposed expert in the law. The second example, of course, is the Good Samaritan. Verse, chapter 10 of Luke, verse 25 through 37. And he says in verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, sa he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanted, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who do I consider? Is it just my fellow Jewish brethren? And Jesus says this, he says, and Jesus answered and said in verse 30, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, 
And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now much like the tax collector, the Samaritans weren't looked at as highly as well. If you were living in first century Palestine and you were living in Galilee or you were living in, in, in Judea and you were Jewish, you despised, by nature of you being a Jewish person, those who were Samarians. You see, this group of people were thought of as being remnants or descendants of the old Israelites in the northern kingdom that was mixed in with other people groups of the Assyrians. So I don't know how completely accurate this is, but it was said, and some believe, that one of the tactics that the Assyrians would do is whenever they would come in and take over a land, they would take some people captive back somewhere else, but what they would do with that location that they just took over, they would bring in people groups, other captured people groups, to blend in with the culture that they just took over. Here's the thought process behind it. You want to destroy the culture. You want to destroy any kind of allegiance that may be happening in the place that you took over. So you mix in other cultures into that one. This was looked at as being the Samaritans. But they were a mixture of the old northern Israelites and people groups, other captured people groups that the Assyrians had captured for the purpose of bringing in. And so that's just, of course, uh, an example, that one, the Samaritans, as well as the tax collectors. So the moral of the story here is that one person whom they traditionally looked down upon seemed to be much richer in righteousness. I mean, think about it. You have a Levite and a priest, two people that are clearly a part of Israel, a priest, a part of the leadership of Israel, and out of the three, it was a Samaritan the person who is typically despised by your typical first century Jewish person that actually displayed a true, genuine intent and love for his fellow man, for his fellow neighbor, while being ignored by, with the Levite and, of course, the priest. So let's go back. I'm going to read... Let's go back to James, second chapter. I want to read that again. James, the second chapter. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so just, it may be a little bit different. Typically, I read from the King, New King James Version. It says in verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called the Lord of glory? And so James gives this illustration. In this scenario, he brings out this situation where one particular guest has arrived to an assembly, a meeting, and has shown favoritism to another based upon how they appear. Their assumed social status. He mentions wearing a gold ring. Well, this is a typical emblem of anyone living in the upper level Roman equestrian class. And the essence of James' condemnation is and how they have allowed themselves to be influenced by the cultural norms of their world. Because this is what Rome would fall into. This is how people would be treated based upon that social stratosphere. And it's something that Jesus, of course, taught against, as we saw in those two parables that we just read, the parable of the tax collector and, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there are plenty others that we can go to, and we've all read before. But... The thing is, is that when we think about this, where do we fall in this story, in our life? Now, maybe we don't have the same partiality that James was pointing out to. Maybe we're not necessarily swayed by someone of status or wealth. Maybe that's not, you know, the way that we show favoritism or partiality. Or maybe that's, you know... Uh, you know, if you think about it, there's certain groups of people, maybe someone who's poor or something like that, isn't necessarily the one that you would disdain. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, and it's kind of a personal question, who are the Samaritans and the tax collectors in our lives? We all have them. They might not be literal Samaritans and literal tax collectors, but what I'm asking is, if you think about your life, when we walk about and journey in this life, who do we maybe inherently, maybe subconsciously, or maybe even consciously, disdain? Or think we're better than? i just give a quick illustration. Owen's here. I think, I think he's the one who inspired this illustration. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, a lot of times it is social status whenever you see people be partial to other people. And what I am reminded of is that if you've ever, you know, either worked in the customer service industry, retail, working in a restaurant, Owen brought up this example, it's been a while now, but about his experience working at Brahms. And uh, I think it was during our Bible study one time, and you had mentioned, Owen, that you'd experienced a lot of rude people working at Brahms. And if you've been in a restaurant, which all of us probably have enough, or maybe been to a store, maybe it's a retail store, you've probably seen a customer that's not happy, maybe the order's not right, maybe things are taking too long, and they talk down to the person working in the, in the store. And they talk down to them almost as if they're better than they are. They may look at someone like Owen, and I'm not picking on you, Owen, but Here's this young guy, and maybe they're someone that thinks very important of themselves. And here's this young adult here that's working at Brahms and think that they're better than Owen because of that. 
we've all seen examples of this, and this is kind of an extreme, but I do wonder sometimes, whenever I see people display this, would you act like that if you knew that person behind the counter was your boss's son or daughter or wife? Of course you wouldn't. Of course they probably wouldn't, right? Why, if we think in that logic, we, we even put ourselves in that situation, because i be honest with you, I mean, I've lost my patience with people before and not been the most friendly. But when I think about that and myself in those situations, and I think, yeah, that would be really embarrassing if that was, you know, my boss's daughter or son or something like that, or I wouldn't, if I knew it was, I wouldn't act the way I would. Why does it take something like that? to stop me from being rude or talking down or inherently acting like I'm better than that person. It shouldn't, right? As Christians, we shouldn't have to think to ourselves, well, I don't want to be like this to this person because we know someone that they may know or they may be a family member of someone. Inherently, we want to be able to love our fellow neighbor and treat people because... We're followers of who? The Lord of glory. And of course, there's all different ways. And we ask that question again. Who's your Samaritan or who your tax collector is? There's all different things that maybe might motivate you or other people or people in the world to show partiality to people. Maybe it really is wealth, status, that people show favoritism or partiality and they treat people of status better then maybe someone just who they look at as from the lower social stratosphere in our own culture. Maybe it's someone's nationality, right? You think someone's not from America or not from this country. Maybe you treat them differently. And I'm not saying you, I'm just saying people in general, different ways that people may show partiality. Race is a big one. Unfortunately and sadly, there still exists racism. People still get shown partiality negatively based upon the color of their skin or their ethnicity. That's an unfortunate reality. Gender, and I'm not talking about the current gender controversies that we all know about, but does gender play a role in how we treat others? And I, as a male, working in different jobs, I have seen people treat people differently based upon gender. I've seen males Men treat women differently, lesser than, lesser capable, because they're women. Showing partiality towards that individual. Of course, you got political affiliation, parenting styles, dress, the way someone dresses. That's kind of getting back to what James is talking about. And even within Christianity, even within the church, some Christians who maybe don't see eye to eye within the church on certain things, may treat people differently based upon that. And when I say differently, negatively, not as well. Look down upon them. Let's read James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. The last and second and last main point. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law 
and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy. To the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so my second main point, set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. Now the royal law, if you were living during the times of James, the royal law was an imperial edict. That means it actually came from headquarters, Roman Empire, straight from the emperor and his imperial edict, which was higher than the justice system of the local aristocracy, the local wealthy landowning aristocrats that would establish their own little local laws. That wasn't a royal law, but rather it was the law of Rome that came straight from Rome, the Roman emperor. In this context, Christians and Jews dealt with two sets of laws, the laws of the government or the aristocracy locally and the law as set forth by their heavenly king, by God their father, by God and Jesus Christ. We have this same setup, right? We have a local government that we, you know, we live within the jurisdiction of, and we have to follow the laws of the land, but we also have God's eternal laws. And some of them are the same. I mean, there's obvious laws that are God's laws that are also part of our state and federal laws, like murder and stealing and things like that. Some of those whom James had in mind, though, in some way thought very highly of their conduct despite their neglect of the spirit of the law. They were missing the spirit of the law. They were missing the idea of love for their fellow man, for their neighbor, by showing partiality. In fact, in verse 4, when we read that in the New King James Version, it says, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's impossible, actually, to translate this Greek phrase as, are you not divided in yourselves? Indicating that there is a divided nature within those he is speaking to who are showing favoritism. On the one hand, they may hold on to the fact that, hey, we don't engage in certain acts. We keep the law. We don't steal from people. We don't murder. We don't commit adultery. We don't covet our neighbor's possession. But they inherently... By showing favoritism, they are showing a way of treating that fellow neighbor as lower. They inherently do not have the love of God in them. They are not showing the love of neighbor when they do that. Yes, they may not steal, they may not murder, they may not covet. But many of us could probably also claim that too to pretty much everyone on earth, right? Because many of us maybe, maybe never have stolen before. We've never committed adultery. We've never murdered, according to the physical law, of course. But see, they were missing the point. They were holding on to, well, we do this, we don't do this, but they were not getting at the intent of the law, which is love. Love is the point of the law. James says in verse 8, according to Scripture, referencing Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, you shall take you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
Now, if we go to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, there was at one point an expert in the law that came to Jesus and tried to trip him up by asking him the question, what is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus, in verse 37 of Matthew 22, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Because all of those laws behind it, the, the, the backing of it, is love. Love for God. Love drives the obedience of the physical. The heart drives the obedience of the physical. Verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. 39 says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's a purpose behind it all, and it's simple. It's love. Love for God and love for fellow man. And with this, Jesus is affirming, and James is getting to, that the whole law points to this singular idea, love of God and love of man. It's that simple. It's complex. But when we speak it, it's simple. You cannot steal from someone and still claim you love them because you have not murdered them. Loving your neighbor as yourself will not allow this. This is why James says in verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Because it is a violation of the basis of the law. And that is love. It's the driving force behind it all. We know that we just kind of read this a little while ago, but it says in Matthew 19, this is a different version. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Well, when the young man heard them say, that saying, he went, and, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, in this instance, the man was doing those things, he was obeying those laws, but clearly it wasn't coming from a place of love. It wasn't coming from a transformed heart. Despite keeping all the law, this man still neglected to rely totally and fully on God. As the scripture says, he really liked his stuff. To the point where it was almost probably a false God for him. Truthfully, his love for his possessions outweighed his love for God despite claiming to keep the law in the physical sense. Let's go to one more scripture. I know we've read a lot, lot of scriptures today more than I typically include in my, my sermons, but Jesus in the magnif uh, magnifying the law of Matthew 5, again another popular scripture that we've read many times. Verse 17 of Matthew 5 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till, one, till, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle 
will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. One jot tittle signifying the written law. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that was a shock. We've read it so many times, we probably to some extent forget, or you know, it's not watered down, but rather we may forget sometimes how much of a shock that would be that someone told you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't inherit or enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. And that's a shock because they were the beacons of righteousness. I mean, how in the world could you be more righteous than these individuals that lived and talked constantly, their entire life devoted to the law and how to keep it and teaching people how to keep it and being meticulous? But Jesus goes on, of course, to show what he means because he brings out the internal intent of the law. He says, lust, that's adultery, not just the physical act. The very desire to lust, the very desire to commit adultery is adultery. The very anger that you have towards your brother, that's murder. And he goes on and on and on. And he shows that the law's whole purpose the entire time was to come from the heart. Not just you physically doing it and keeping it while it's not doing anything for you inside. But you're keeping the law inside out. If the law of God is written on your heart and you've been changed and that change has resulted in you having different desires, different wants, that change prompts you to physically keep the law because it's a transformation that's taken inside of you, in the heart. And you live it out physically with God your Father and Jesus Christ the Son and your fellow neighbor, your fellow man. In closing, I want to encourage us to check our hearts and ask ourselves, can we do better in how we interact with our neighbors? Who's our neighbors? Ask yourself the question, who is our Samaritan? Who is our tax collector? Do we truly follow the royal law? Which is just a fancy way of saying the intent of the law, the love of God, the love of fellow man. Do we get hung up on how well we've done on the physical part, even though inside we have a subconscious or conscious desire maybe not to be not to do the things that the law says because we don't, we're not allowing God's spirit to transform us. The royal law, of course, is the law of God as it was intended. A changed heart, it written on our hearts, and the love that comes from the heart towards God and our fellow man. Going back to the very beginning, the very first scripture we read today, I am convinced that the key to following God's exhortation as found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is doing this to do justly to love mercy and walk humbly with your God is of course the way we treat our fellow man 
and the emphasis we put in our life on following the royal law, the true law of God that's born out of a changed heart through love and expressed to both God and our neighbor.